Chapter 4, Change Forever Our lives immediately and profoundly changed on March 1944, when the Nazis became aware that Hungary wanted to withdraw from the Axis alliance and that Miklos Horty was making overtures to the Allies, the German army marched into Hungary and occupied it with SS officer Adolf Eichmann in charge of ghettoizing and deporting the Jews. Matters proceeded with lightning speed. Shortly after the German occupation, all Jewish schools had to close their doors. My memories of that time are of constantly worried faces and whispered discussions among the adults around us. The children absorbed their grave concern by osmosis, and our childhoods were not allowed to blossom as we lived with uncertainty from day to day. The brutal events that followed in rapid succession happened with full cooperation and participation of the newly installed pro-German Prime Minister Demestoya, along with the bureaucrats, the police, the dreaded brutal gendarmes, and the good people who were waiting with jaundiced eyes to loot our homes. On March 31st, Jews were ordered to wear a yellow star of David, cut from canary yellow cloth and in a specified size. It had to be worn on an outer garment when we were in public. We became a visible minority, and life became precarious. I remember riding on the streetcar to visit the students I tutored. The yellow star was attached to my jacket, as it legally had to be, but I covered it with the books and notes I was holding. Ah, this was my little act of resistance. At one point, my father was called into the Gestapo headquarters to face demands for the gold that we didn't have. He was tortured by having the soles of his feet badly beaten, and he walked home in great pain. My father's barber of some 30 years offered to hide us all until the end of the war since the Soviets were already very close, but my naive father said, no, what happens to all of us Jews here will happen to me too. End of argument. He was the sole decision maker. Actually, the barber would have had to hide us for less than a year until the area was liberated by the Soviet army on October 19, 1944. But by then, most Hungarian Jews who were deported from the provinces had been murdered in Auschwitz-Birkenau. The eastern part of Hungary was Judenfrei, free of Jews. Additional restrictions and edicts were rapidly introduced on May 9. The Debrecen ghetto was established in the area of the city where most of the Jews lived. The ghetto was divided in two by a street, a large and small ghetto, 
allowing the non-Jewish population to carry on with their daily activities unhindered. Non-Jews had to leave the area where the ghetto was to make room for the Jews who were transferred in. The ghetto was cordoned off behind temporary wooden walls. Large numbers of our extended family moved into our home, which was inside the ghetto boundaries, and there seemed to be people everywhere. It was terribly overcrowded, especially at night when we all had to lie down to sleep. It was wall-to-wall people. Of course, the toilet facilities became hopelessly inadequate. We were allowed two hours a day to do grocery shopping. However, that was in the late afternoon when the stores were mostly empty of goods. Our isolation from our neighbors and the rest of the population of Debrecen was now complete. Young as I was, I sensed misery all around me. The women tried to make meals with the meager supplies they could get, but it was never enough. I worked as a volunteer's nurse's helper in the makeshift hospital that was housed in what had been the Jewish high school. Teenagers were often given the task of playing with younger children who were very restless or upset with the upheaval around them especially when there was an Allied bombing. But our ghetto life didn't last long enough for us to organize anything meaningful for the little ones. Lack of adequate food and medical supplies, lack of freedom, and lack of privacy made life seem more and more helpless every day. My parents asked me to correspond with my youngest brother, Lotzi, who was stationed in Hungary as a forced laborer. In one of my letters, I poured out my complaints about everything that we were lacking in the ghetto, but above all, I bemoaned our loss of freedom. After the war, when I met up with Lotzi, I found out that the correspondence was checked and that Lotzi was punished for my complaints and had to do about 40 push-ups. Deranged fascist logic. There was one bright spot, a ray of light that shone through the dark clouds in the form of some unexpected clandestine help. There was a set of windows in our home that opened onto Nugati Utsa, which was one of the boundaries of the ghetto. The authorities had boarded the windows from the outside so that we could not make contact with the outside world. But one night, we heard a faint knocking on one of the boards. Voices from outside told us that they were friends and that they had food for us. The board was removed Food was quickly handed through the window, and the board was replaced. After the war, I did some research about Christian groups in Debrecen who were active in the resistance, and I surmised that these kind people were most likely Seventh-day Adventists. 
Whatever faith they belonged to, they dared to follow their own ethical compass and refused to be bullied into indifference or hatred. They represented one tiny bright little light in the prevailing societal darkness. They repeated their noble deed once more. From the ghetto, father sent a farewell letter to Clary in Budapest, a fatal mistake. Clary came back to say her last goodbye to the family and stayed too long. The ghetto was closed and escape was impossible. Clary was trapped and became depressed. Her spirit returned once for a few brief seconds when a Hungarian policeman came to our home to order us together for deportation. He noticed her nice little wristwatch, a high school graduation gift from our parents, which she had refused to hand in to the authorities. The Hungarian police officer, while polite enough, demanded it. Clary very slowly took it off and then smashed it against the wall. With a smirk on her face, she looked into the man's eyes and said, Now you can have it. Surprisingly, nothing happened to her. The policeman must have known what her fate would be very shortly. Our time in the ghetto did not last very long. Six memorable and miserable weeks altogether. Little did we know then how well off we were in comparison with what was to come. On June 21st, 1944, the ghetto was emptied and we were transferred to the nearby Shirley Brickyards. I can still picture our march through the city to the brick factory Many of our neighbors lining the sidewalks, watching and laughing. There was the odd tear. These people, many of whom had been friendly with our parents for 30-some-odd years, had become adversaries in a mere couple of years, some in a few months. It was difficult for my young mind to understand this, and it is still incomprehensible. As we learned after the war, many of these neighbors could hardly wait for us to be deported, and as soon as we were, they looted our homes, grabbing those few wretched items the Nazi occupiers hadn't confiscated. We were housed in this factory, which was unfit for humans to live in, for about eight days. We hung up blankets to create tiny private spaces, especially for our parents and for elderly and religious people. Recently dug ditches with some wooden planks thrown across served as latrines. There was no separation for males and females. This was a most humiliating and degrading experience for all of us. The shame felt by everyone was palpable. Then came the lineup and waiting for the cattle cars. Ironically, when they came, we felt relief. 
Thursday, June 29, 1944, the deportation began with Hungarian soldiers pushing and shoving people into cattle cars. It is impossible to adequately describe this bewildering development. The physical, emotional, and psychological turmoil experience inside the car overflowing with 78 people. The elderly sat on the floor, a few on the bedding or small suitcases they brought along. The mothers with infants or toddlers tried to find space. The young people like my sisters and I stood packed like herring in a jar and perspiring profusely in the heat. We were provided with two pails, one with drinking water and an empty one to use as a toilet. Of course, there was no privacy. It didn't take long for the crying and children's whining to blend horribly with the stench emanating from the makeshift open toilet. My father, a pious Jew, prayed a lot. But judging from the expression on his face, I am certain he felt betrayed by his God. My mother cried quietly. My 18-month-old nephew, Janus son, Peter, who was sick, whined constantly for food we didn't have, and all 78 of us thirsted for water that was in short supply. The dreadful atmosphere in the cattle car foreshadows something ominous to come. The rich family life and community, like chronicles so lovingly earlier, had been left behind and was now only a treasured memory. Gone were those happy, carefree school years with my youthful trials and tribulations. In the cattle car, They all seemed utterly trivial.